Last night, when we were uh, meeting, our, our particular missional community was meeting at Cameron Ellie's. We got to talking once again about this topic, blessed are the poor. And, and as we were discussing this, uh, one of our individuals, and I'm not going to mention the name, but was just sharing how we struggle with this concept. Because so often, those are those people, right? Those are the people who are not like us. And they have to kind of become like us to some degree before we can enter into a fellowship and community with them. So we've been talking about this topic now for, I don't know, this is the fourth or fifth uh, time we've been on the subject, and there's just going to be one more next week, okay? So that's just a heads up. But we've been looking at this idea of blessed are the poor, full stop. That's what Jesus said in Luke when he went through the Beatitudes. In, in Matthew, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But in Luke, he simply says, blessed are the poor, full stop. And this morning, we're going to now back up a little bit in the book of Luke because we're going to encounter Jesus in his inaugural speech. And if you have your Bible, or if you want to just follow on the screen, we're going to read this account that takes place in Luke chapter 4. This was sort of Jesus' launching point of his ministry according to the book of Luke, according to the gospel of Luke. And we're going to get a lot of scripture this morning. Is that okay? All right. So Luke chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 16, and I will be reading from the message, all right? This is from the message version. It reads like this. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been reared, where he had been raised. We know, of course, that he was born in Bethlehem, and then he went to Egypt for a period, and then he came back with his family to Nazareth. And, of course, that idea alone, some people often responded, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was not known as being the elite, upper-crust members of society. I, I won't draw analogies for our own context other than to say, I guess I will, that we talked uh, at the first teaching that the most impoverished city in all of Maine is the city of Old Town. And so, you know, you know, can anything good come out of Old Town? No offense, Warren and Michelle. But can anything good come out of Old Town? It's almost like that question is being posed. But he, was, he, he came here to Nazareth where he had been raised. And now notice this, and I want you to put this in your back pocket, okay? We're going to read this and then we're gonna, we might return to it. So I'm just going to give you a little sneak peek. It said, as he always did on the what? On the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. In the original language, it's synagogue. He went to the synagogue. So as he always did, every week from Sabbath to Sabbath, Saturday to Saturday, he went to the synagogue. And notice what it says now. When he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now in those times, and and often today when you go to a Jewish synagogue, they will go through a reading. They will go week by week, and there's actually a lot of Christian churches that do this as well. They have a lectionary, and from week to week they'll just resume where they left off. And so when Jesus comes to the synagogue, to the meeting place in Nazareth, the, the particular reading for that week 
was from the prophet Isaiah, which is very interesting because it's, it's, it's very providential because this is Jesus, again, announcing his ministry. This is Jesus announcing what his whole ministry will be about. Now, what they would do is they would pass around the scroll and different people would read it from week to week. And so this was Jesus' turn. And notice what Luke goes on to record. He says, unrolling the scroll, he, that is Jesus, found the place where it was written. And these are the words that he read. God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the the poor. This is the very first thing Jesus declares as he reads the the prophet Isaiah. This is the, the center of his ministry, to preach good news to the poor. He goes on to read, He has sent me to announce pardon to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and the battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. This was his declaration. This was like, in, in the Old Testament vocabulary, this was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee when all debts were canceled. Now they would do this every seven years as well. You know, I kind of touched on this last week a little bit, but imagine if we l- really did take the scriptures seriously and we used it as our, as our rubric for how we operated as a people. Imagine if we used it as a way to shape and to form our politics. Now, I am not advocating for a marriage of church and religion at all. I'm sorry, I am advocating for a marriage of church and religion. I'm not advocating for a marriage of church and state. But there's lots of people who want to do that. And then, and then we pick and choose the parts that we, we want to have instilled in our government. And one of those things that is not very popular for many people is this idea of debt cancellation. That every seven years, there was this provision that if somebody was in your debt, you actually canceled that debt every five years. Can somebody say hallelujah? (laughs) I don't know. I think I'd vote for that presidential candidate if they said all debts are canceled every seven years. Uh, well, uh, we're not, we're not make, mentioning names here. We're not, I did mention that in the first sermon, though. Somebody, somebody, some scholar that I quoted said it almost sounds like the, that Jesus would vote for Bernie Sanders. But that's another topic altogether. But imagine if we just chose freely to live this, this way. Not just spiritually, you know, it's nice to be forgiving and we don't have to wait for seven years to forgive people emotionally and spiritually and morally. But if we live this way towards others on a general everyday life. Now notice what happens. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the assistant and he sat down and, man, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there. He just read it. He, he rolled it up. He sat down and notice what happens. And every eye in the whole place was on him intent. They're just like, Watching him, just waiting, just waiting. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Now check this out. Then he started in. You have just heard. You have just heard. The scripture make history. It came true just now in this place. This is Jesus declaring the beginning of his kingdom. This is Jesus declaring the start of something radically new where he was coming to fulfill what the Old Testament scriptures declared would happen. 
He was the one who was filling up all of those predictions, filling up all those laws, filling up all those prophecies. He says, this is why I've come. I have come. And, and the very first thing he said was what? To preach good news to the poor. That was Jesus' burden. That was his ministry. That was his, his whole direction and mission. And notice what Luke goes on to record. He says, all who were there watching and listening were surprised at how well he spoke. They just marveled at the things that he said. And, and, and they said, never a man spoke as this man spoke. Now, there's one author I, was, I, I like to read sometimes, and she makes this observation about the way that Jesus spoke. She actually says, never a man spoke as he spoke, because never a man lived as he lived. You see, there was a power to his words because it was accompanied by a way of life that lived out the reality of what he was saying. You know, Jesus, when he's here, he quotes which prophet? He quotes Isaiah. Now, we're going to take a step back because there's lots and lots of material that Isaiah expounds this very topic and this, this idea, because this is a major burden for Isaiah as well as many of the other prophets. And very specifically, Jesus, when he declares this ministry, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 60, but he's also referring to a very interesting chapter in Isaiah chapter 58. Because there's, there's two places that he's kind of, he's kind of pointing back to. And notice what Isaiah 58 says is because it's a very, very fascinating chapter. And again, you can turn there in your, your own Bible if you want to. But notice what Isaiah 58 says. Again, reading from the message, it says, somehow I doubled it up here. Isaiah chapter 58, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. This is actually from the New Living Translation. Notice what Isaiah the prophet says. He says, shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They act so proud and arrogant. He says, but they are full of sins. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the law of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you. They say, why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. So check out what Israel, this was, this was God's chosen people. They were acting all holy and righteous and pious and, and, and they're fasting and they're praying and they're going to the temple every day and they're, they're going through all the religious services and they're like, but something's not working here. God's not listening to us. God is not paying attention to us. He's not hearing our prayers. He's not impressed with our fasts. Isaiah goes on to say, I will tell you why. I respond, this is God speaking. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep doing what? Oppressing your workers. So it's like, check this out. They were having a form of religious life. They were acting these rituals out. But when they were not in the temple, when they were not observing these religiously pious acts... They were mistreating others in the process. So God's like, you know what? You're, you're saying something with your mouth, but your actions are showing me something else. 
He's essentially saying, you can do all the nice religious things, you can perform all these religious works and all these things that make you personally pious, but at the core, how are you treating other people? How are you specifically treating your workers, those who are under you, those who are in the hierarchy, those who are below you? He goes on to write, what good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress up in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. In other words, they were debasing themselves. This is actually, scholars have, have identified that this chapter is speaking of what they would do during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was the highest day of the Jewish calendar. They were going through those, those impressive acts of self-debasement and humbling. And God's like, I'm not even paying attention to it. He says, is, is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? How many times do you and I, we operate under the assumption that if we just perform certain religious duties... That, that we are right with God. And at the heart, however, at the heart of, of God's religion, of, of the kingdom of Jesus that he came to present, at the heart of it was the way that you and I relate to one another, and especially how you and I relate to those that are below us, quote-unquote. He goes on to say, no, check this out. This is the kind of fast that I want. You ready? This is, what, this is the, the fast that Jesus is calling for, that God is calling for. You are to free those who are wrongly imprisoned. You are to lighten the burden of those who work for you. You are to let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. You are to share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. You are to give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as, check this out, you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A restorer of homes. Restore of homes. This was a common theme throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. There was this book that I picked up about six years ago that was just an epic book. It's by this author, this, this, this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi. His name was Abraham Heschel. He was probably the most famous Jewish rabbi in the 20th century. And he had a heart for justice. He actually, he actually marched often with Martin Luther King Jr. And he was trying to call for social justice and trying to call attention to, to the, the inequities that were going on in America. And he wrote this epic book called The Prophets, simply called The Prophets. 
And it's about, I don't know, 800 pages long. And the very first paragraph, I picked it up. I was like, man, I love this guy. So awesome. Check out what he says. Stick with me. It's a little, it's a little heady, but stick with me. He's talking about these prophets, Isaiah, Amos, Obadiah, Jeremiah. Check out what he says. He says, what manner of man is the prophet? This is the very first paragraph. A student of philosophy who turns from the discourses of the great metaphysicians, that's a big word, right? To the orations of the prophets may feel as if he were going from the realm of the sublime, like, wow, this is amazing stuff that's otherworldly, to an area of trivialities. Instead of dealing with the timeless issues of being and becoming, of matter and form, of definitions and demonstrations, what happens when you read the prophets? He is thrown into orations about widows and orphans. About the corruption of judges and affairs of the marketplace. Instead of showing us a way through the elegant mansions of the mind, the prophets take us to the slums. The world is a proud place full of beauty, but the prophets are scandalized and rave as if the whole world were a slum. They make much ado about paltry things, lavishing excessive language upon trifling subjects. What if somewhere in ancient Palestine, poor people... I lost it. I messed up. Oh, boy. To be continued next time. It was really good, the rest of it. (laughs) Somehow I, I made a mistake. Anyway, his point is, you get it? Is that the, we, we want to deal in the abstract. And we want to deal with the great philosophical questions. And, and, and the prophets, they come along. And these are the, the great writers of scripture. And what they're worried about is how we treat the poor. How, what we do to the oppressed, to the widows. Those that are, that are unfortunate and those in need. And, he, and they invite us to to take stock of the way we behave and the way we treat them. But, you know, something interesting happens in Isaiah 58 because in this chapter where God is critiquing the religion of the Jewish people, and he's saying, you're fasting, I'm not paying attention, this is the fast that I want, I want you to feed the hungry, I want you to help the oppressed. I want you to minister to those who are in need. It's like, at the end of the chapter, out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, the chapter suddenly pivots. And it, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, brings up this seemingly random thought. And you think to yourself, why does God go here? He's talking about treating the poor with grace and justice. Why does he go here? And where does he go? He all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, says this. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Huh? How'd how'd you get there, God? Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in everything you do on that day and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. 
Remember when we were there at the beginning in Luke, and Jesus announces his ministry of, of bringing liberation to the poor and the oppressed, what did we notice? We put it in our back pocket, right? Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been reared as he always did on the Sabbath. So Jesus was announcing this great ministry of liberation. He was announcing the great equality of rich and poor. He was doing it on the Sabbath. It was like he was fulfilling Isaiah 58, where he is trying to help them see those who are so devoted on Sabbath, those who are so preoccupied with Sabbath. He was saying, this is what this day is all about. I have come to show you that I am the great liberator, the great equalizer. I am the God of justice, and at the heart is this day of equality. At the heart is this day of justice. At the heart is everyone sitting equal, standing equal at the foot of the cross. You know, I, I, when, I, when I was reading through this this last week, I immediately thought of a, a verse that captivated my imagination uh, last summer. So last summer, just as a personal testimony, I, I decided that I would take every place where the scriptures talk about the Sabbath. Because growing up, I was told, you know, these are the parameters of Sabbath, and this is what you do, and this is what you don't do. And some of it, finally, as a 37-year-old, was not making sense to me. And I was like, okay, i got to see what the Bible says about this. i got to see what the Bible says. I can't tell... I can't take what my mother or father say about it. I can't take what Oscar says about it. I love you, Oscar. I can't take, I, I have to know what does scripture say about it. And so I went through all of scripture. You know, there's some like three, four hundred passages. And I just went verse by verse by verse. And there was one particular verse that just jumped out at me. And it kind of confirmed a lot of the things that I had been sensing. And it's another prophet that, brings it out, and that's Amos chapter 8. Check this out. This is again a critique of the, 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 the people of Israel, and Amos levels this charge at the people of Israel, and he says, listen to this. You who rob the poor and trample down the needy. Is that kind of the same general topic that we've been discussing? Yes. Check out what he says. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over. You can't wait. Why? And you can't wait for the religious festivals to end. Why can't they wait to do it? So you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales and you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor. Then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver or a pair of sandals. So don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. What God is saying is that the only thing that is hindering you from exploiting the poor 24-7 is what? Sabbath. He's saying this day at least provides some protection from these people that you have continuously been cheating and robbing and taking advantage of. And so at the core, because this is what was 
what was becoming evident to me as I was reading scripture is at the core, the Sabbath at its core is about mainly two things. Number one, don't work. Don't work. That's what, that's what scripture says. Don't work. That's what the that Sabbath is for. Don't work. And number two, don't cause others to work on your behalf. Extend rest. Have it be a day of equality for rich and poor. As a matter of fact, this is the big idea. The Sabbath is the great equalizer between rich and poor. Because we're all equal. I'm not trying to exploit you on this day. Now, don't get me wrong. I shouldn't try to exploit you on Friday or Tuesday or Monday either, right? But at the very least, if I can learn to step into the rhythm of Sabbathing every week, then I can be formed and shaped by God's grace to be one who learns to live out that rhythm the rest of the week as well. If I can say, you know what, I'm going to take this day. This is a discipline. I'm going to take this day once a week, Saturday, every Sabbath. I'm going to take this day, and I'm not going to try to draw people into my service. I'm going to take a break from 24-hour, seven days a week work. I'm going to take this day as, a, as an act of, and I mentioned this a few months ago, but as an act of a weekly resistance. We're not going to contribute to the tyranny of constant labor and, 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 and capitalism. You know, nothing wrong with capitalism, I'm just saying. I mean, there's lots wrong with capitalism, but there's lots wrong with other things as well. But you understand what I'm saying? That I'm not going to contribute to this 24-7 cycle of, of, of purchasing and materialism and consumerism and buying and causing people to, to have to labor on my behalf and me not to have to labor on that on their behalf. I'm going to just, I'm going to choose by God's grace to step into this experience of grace where I can rest from my labors and, and, and allow others to rest from their labors. And there's, there's, a particular, there's, there's one particular reason why this is a very, very acute, relevant concern for me. And I've mentioned this before, so forgive me. I probably, every time I speak on this topic, I probably mention it, but it's a very significant thing. And that's because I wouldn't be born. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the Sabbath. Yeah, that sounds like a funny thing, but... Uh, so, again, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I've told this story probably at least two or three other times in some of your hearing. But my dad was the youngest of six children growing up in New Brunswick, Canada. Moncton, New Brunswick. Any of you been to Moncton, New Brunswick? It's quite a name, yeah. So, you know, it's, what, probably four hours from here. So he grew up the youngest of six children. And his family was a very poor family. And his, his father worked at a department store in Moncton, New Brunswick. And he didn't have an education, didn't have a lot of other opportunities, and he was trying to support these six kids just on this meager income working at a department store. His dad was, uh, was sort of like a nominal Christian, wasn't really active uh, very much. And uh, my, my grandmother, however, was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and every Saturday morning... Um, 
there were some neighbors that would come and they would have a pickup truck and they would load all the kids in the back of the pickup truck and they would drive them to church. Imagine doing that today. But they would do that every Saturday. That's how my dad experienced uh, church growing up. Well, eventually there was a, a man who came into the big city of Moncton. He was going to be preaching some, some, some sermons on, on the gospel. And my grandmother felt burdened to have my grandfather attend them because you know, she wanted him to experience the truth and the joy that she had. And so she, she said, how can I get him to, to come to these meetings? And, and she realized that the evangelist was, was accompanied by a quartet, a singing quartet. And my, my grandfather, whom I never met because he, he died before even my parents got married, uh, my, my grandfather was in a barbershop quartet, and he loved music. And so my grandmother said, hey, you know, Malcolm, why don't you come and listen to these musicians? And so he would go and he would listen and he would enjoy the quartet. And then eventually over time, he kept going and he kept going and he kept going. And of course, as he was listening to the quartet, he would stay for the preacher. And the preacher was preaching these messages and they gripped his heart. And he gave his life to Jesus. And one of the things that he, he did as well is he embraced this idea of the beauty and the joy of Sabbath. And uh, that, however, created a problem because he was very convicted that he needed to take that day as a day of rest, no work. And so he went to his, his employers and he said, guys, I, um, I need to have every Saturday off because I've recently come to the, to the conviction and, 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 and the, the need to have this day off for for my family and for worship and for God. And, and they said, you know what? It's either your job or it's that choice. Now, in those days in Canada, I don't know what it's like now. It's probably, maybe it's getting back to where it once was. But in, in, in those days, um, there was no protection for religious convictions when it come, comes to Sabbath keeping. Uh, and today in the United States, actually, there's a, there's a case that's about to go perhaps to the Supreme Court on this very topic. And so people are curious, will there be protection for people to worship and not have to work? But in those days, there was no protection against that. And so he was faced with this decision. Either I keep working and I violate my convictions and I violate my desire to, to resist this type of of constant work, or I keep the Sabbath. Now his family, his siblings tried to talk him out of, his siblings tried to talk him out of doing it. You have a, you have a family, you don't have any other jobs. Anyway, to make a long story short, he said, I've made that choice. And he chose the Sabbath. And he got fired. He got fired. He had no other job prospects, no education, no possibilities. For the next year or so, he started going door to door trying to sell Christian books. And he failed miserably. And uh, what he did was he heard of a job as a janitor at a Seventh-day Adventist hospital in Stoneham, Massachusetts. And he moved to Stoneham, Massachusetts. And he took up, and for the rest of his life, he worked as a janitor at this hospital. 
Now, eventually, my dad met my mom in Stoneham, Massachusetts. So had my grandfather never moved to Stoneham to get this job as a janitor, my dad would have never met my mom, and I never would have been born. And had my grandfather not put his foot down, by God's grace, and said, I'm going to step into, I'm going to step into the peace and the rest that Sabbath brings. I'm going to choose that. I'm going to choose not to be a part of this constant 24-7 cycle of work. Had he not done that, I wouldn't be here today. So I'm going to invite you this morning this afternoon. I know it's kind of a roundabout way of doing it. But I want to invite you, and I've, and I've, I've made this appeal before, but I, I just want to invite you to join me in saying no to that 24-7 cycle of hustling, of materialism and consumerism and, and exploitation and oppression. And, and I mean, if, if, if there was no Sabbath, I think the world would just crumble and and completely disintegrate. It's almost doing it anyway. But what would happen if we stepped into the the reality of Saturday Sabbath keeping, the seventh day of the week, where God sets aside that day and says, you know what, you don't need to cause other people to work for you. Usually the ones who are working on that day are not the ones who are doing well off, right? And we say, well, they're going to be working anyway, so I don't get, get how... I'm helping them because I'm just taking work away from them, right? But God says, listen, if you trust me, and we all all step into this by his grace, we can help the poor in ways that seem intangible to us. Will you do that this morning? Will you commit to that? That's the very practical act. That's the very practical act that I'm asking you to do this morning. Step into the reality of Sabbath rest, where you experience it and you extend it to other people. And the poor can be lifted up if we decide to do that by his grace. Blessed are the poor. And let's extend Sabbath to them as well, as we're all equal on this day together.